0: Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I speak to Amelia Horgan, philosophy PhD candidate researching the politics of work and author of Lost in Work, Escaping Capitalism. We discuss the changing nature of work in the UK and around the world, how these trends have been impacted by the pandemic and whether it's possible to imagine good work under capitalism. Thanks so much, as always, to our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornel West, support us at patreon.com slash aworldtowinpod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts. And share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at aworldtowinpod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who have let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Amelia Horgan on what's changed in the world of work over the last decade. Hello Amelia Horgan and thank you so much for joining me on A World to Win. How are you doing today?
1: I'm all right. How are you?
0: Yeah, not bad. It's a beautiful sunny day here in South London, so can't complain. <laughs> so, today we're going to be talking about your book, Lost in Work, which is an absolutely fantastic book that I would really recommend everyone go out and purchase. We'll put a link to that in the description um, and to some pieces that you've written about it. My first question for you um, is that Keynes famously predicted a long time ago that we'd all be working 15 hour weeks by now. What
1: happened? Yes, this is this is this uh, great quote from him, which is exactly this question is posed: is what happened? I mean, I guess there is this kind of idea of a smooth process of automation in which we can just reduce the amount of time we spend working. But this denies the kind of political will, the the, the political choices that are made to keep people in work, um, as well as just how smoothly that that technology can develop. I mean, if you have a low wage economy, the incentive to Automate might not be present, right? Um, And we can see one example of this is something like um, hand car washing. So, if you remember a few few decades ago, or you know, when I remember being a child and seeing these kind of fantastic automatic washing machines in um, petrol stations, right? And you don't really see many of those anymore, because if you have this highly unequal, low wage economy, what is the incentive there for for a business owner to invest all this money in a machine when you can pay someone um, very little to do it? So in short, Grimes wasn't right. (laughs) Grimes was not right.
0: (laughs) So one thing that we might have been used to hearing, particularly before the pandemic, is that we were experiencing kind of record levels of employment in the UK. And that was told by the government as a massive success story. What is the kind of truth underneath those headline statistics?
1: Yeah, so we had seen after the 2008 um, crisis, this kind of what appeared to be this fantastic recovery, more people back in work, things looking up. And I think what was hidden beneath this was the presence of part-time work, zero-hours contracts, bogus self-employment. So more people in work, right? But the question is, what kind of work? What hours are they doing? What does that look like? What is the experience of that work? What are the conditions? It might be the case that there are more people who have a job, right? Um, that doesn't tell us very much. We need to be thinking about what their conditions of work are actually like. Um, are they? Do they know when their shifts are? Are they able to work the hours they need to work? Are they subject to harassment, domination at work. These kind of headline figures mask the realities of crap jobs, which we're seeing this kind of bifurcation of, of the labour market mm. in the in, in Britain and elsewhere.
0: And how have these trends changed over the course of the pandemic? Are we seeing a kind of deepening of insecurity, low pay, long hours, and, you know, obviously a reversal of this trend in in increasing employment. And how do you think the recovery or, you know, if we ever get there, is going to, yeah, to impact those trends? Do you think we'll go back to this kind of high employment but high insecurity model? Or are we going to see a kind of long-term scarring effect or indeed much broader changes just to the nature of work itself?
1: I think uh, things are a bit up in the air at the moment, but what we've seen are that a lot of jobs have, have disappeared because of what's happened in the, in the service sector. And retail was obviously one of the the major areas in which people were employed. And there has been an effect, obviously, on on restaurants, on high street shops, that and that, that has meant particularly young people, particularly people of color losing, just jobs disappearing, what the recovery will look like. Given that our previous economy was based on a kind of, on service sector jobs, isn't entirely clear and is potentially quite worrying. I guess we also have to see what happens with the realities of, of the labour market after Brexit. This is one of the moments where I'm like, as a non-economist, it's hard for me to make decent predictions. But it seems like the recovery from 2008, which was already like pretty slow, the ability to kind of create new jobs was already like we we're kind of sputtering out only these pretty crap jobs, wages were, were low and stickily. So I don't necessarily see that that changing and perhaps getting worse and this bifurcation potentially deepening. Um, there are issues around people working from home. Obviously people working from home have in some ways been protected, not just in some ways, have been protected in ways that people who had to work in person haven't been during the pandemic. But what this might point to is is a growth in remote monitoring as employers look to cut their costs of, of rent and push those costs back onto their employees. But, of course, when you make people work, on, work from home, what you lose is that ability to constantly check that they're doing their work, to make sure that the labour power that you've bought is being used properly, right? It's being, it, it's being kind of... Um, that the workers are, are doing the right stuff by their employers, not by themselves, of course. So... What do you do in that situation? Well, things like remote monitoring become much more of interest. And again, the evidence is is patchy but worrying, I would say. There's still a lot of stigma around remote monitoring for office jobs in the UK. Obviously, it, that monitoring is there for, for algorithmic platform work, but we might see a growth of that kind of thing with all, with all the attendant harms uh, involved. Can you
0: talk a little bit more about this increase in monitoring, not just remotely, but throughout workplaces in general, and how it's linked to trends of rising insecurity and precarity, stagnant pay and declining conditions?
1: Yeah, so power relations at work are such that because what is bought by the employer is not a given activity but the potential to do that activity so there is an incentive on the part of the employer to make sure that the activity is being done in the right way this looks different in different times in uh, history if you have a kind of factory line it's 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 obvious if someone is keeping up the pace or is not keeping up the pace or it's is doing a different thing to the thing they're supposed to be doing but in the kind of more autonomous activity of the um of some modern office workers this will look quite different because it's not necessarily obvious if, some, if someone has done What they're supposed to be doing at a particular time again if you think of a of a retail job if someone's job is to uh, make sure that the denim section is in good order it becomes very quickly obvious if it's not so the monitoring depends on the activity itself but as you pointed to there it also depends on the conditions of that worker's employment so and, and it's a bit chicken and egg here but Work that is um, insecure or precarious is often subject to more monitoring because um, the possibility for that control is is more present. So if you have a zero hours contract, one of the ways that that control can manifest itself as is as... Um, if you don't have guaranteed hours the following week you want to make sure you're seen to be doing your job as much as you can so you can get those hours or you can have that bargaining power to say okay I need to pick up my kids at this time can I have this shift rather than that shift so the kind of levers of of power are also shaped by the conditions of employment if you're in a secure job and you're able to say no I'm not doing this or I'm not doing this this time or no I need to do this more slowly you're more able to refuse whereas if you don't have that kind of individual bargaining power and this is of course before we even think about people combining kind of in trade unions just the individual worker relating to their manager and and then throw into the mix the possibility for technological monitoring in an unprecedented way so it's always the manager On behalf of of the employer has always been able to you know see if people are doing their jobs and they can see that to varying extents depending on the activity being done but technology gives the ability to kind of fully model the workplace fully fully give an idea of what a worker is doing in particular jobs so places like the Amazon warehouse you can just tell what someone has been doing at any given point and that data can be used as as a tool of a tool of management it's a kind of all-seeing eye that uh, managers wouldn't have had before. So there's that kind of total total monitoring if you think about like an Uber driver for example and the rating system and the, the kind of domination that the customer can have over them there and then you hear about stuff in the states like um Instacart and the very personal domination there where the ratings make a huge difference. We don't have a huge number of those services yet in Britain but they seem to be, there seem to be some new ones springing up. It creates these kind of perverse incentives, which can change the thing that's being done, but it allows a real intensification of work and, and, and often bullying of, of workers in, in, in especially in precarious work mm-hmm. because the um you know the employer wants to secure the maximum from the worker, right? They they don't want people to be slacky off. Yeah, there's so much to unpack there.
0: I want to start with, so you brought up there Amazon workers, which I think is an mm-hmm. interesting example. You know, we know so much about the kind of appalling treatment of workers in the Amazon warehouses, in various parts of the logistics network, although this varies depending on whether they're unionized, what local labor law is like, etc. But in places where workers are most exploited and indeed where they're resisting that exploitation, Amazon, which has obviously, as you said, been collecting all this data on what its workers are doing, is saying, right, okay, well, if we're being hauled over the coals for treating our workers appallingly, if we're experiencing strikes, etc., then we'll just automate all of these tasks. How mm-hmm. can workers in these warehouses, in these conditions, respond to that, basically, to the conditions in which they find themselves?
1: You're right to point to um, the importance of, of trade unions here, and. Amazon is a hard employer to fight because it is really international and what it's able to do is when it becomes too expensive to have some bits of its supply chain in one country it would say okay we'll, we'll put them in this place with these better better for them obviously labor laws more a more favorable set of conditions for them and we saw with Bessemer the failure of the recognition campaign in the states it is going to be a uh, a long hard slog to to win but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try um, trade unions are the only way we can really make these victories that's not to say that kind of consumer campaigns or boycotts have have no part to play but they should only come into force when that's something those those unions have asked for yeah it's it's uh fighting a company like amazon is extremely difficult it's there's often a, a kind of liberal line about work which is that you know it's not it's not efficient or it's not for employers to treat workers badly um it's not in there it's not in the interest of employers and you can see in you know that might be true for particular jobs but it's certainly not true for somewhere like the amazon warehouse or it's not true for somewhere like call centers right where the ability to replace someone The costs of getting someone new in are very low. It's very easy to um, get someone in. There's not much training, and there are lots of people who are desperate for these jobs because of where these workplaces have been chosen to be, right? It is not against this kind of liberal idea that there is, you know, we can just smooth out this antagonism here, that it's in everyone's interest to do things in a certain way. It actually isn't really in their interest to treat their employees well. They can and they do completely run their employees into the ground workers are treated horrendously in in these kinds of workplaces and they are encouraged to see themselves as the problem uh, there was a leaflet amazon put out which it then said you know that, that wasn't us that was a rogue leaflet or whatever and um in that it said you had to treat yourself like a kind of athlete, you had to be responsible for your own health, you had to make sure you drank enough water at work, you know, you had to get ready for a shift, you had to have enough sleep the night before. Perhaps not um, bad advice, but it totally misses the point that who sets the speeds, who sets the rates at which uh, workers have to go and pick these items and pack these items. Well, it's Amazon, right? If Amazon is worried about reducing the rate of workplace injury, they need to slow that down um, or have flexibility around that. But instead, there's a responsabilization where workers are expected to take on that responsibility, take on the kind of costs, and if they don't, it's it's their problem rather than their employers. And that's a really kind of cunning trick of contemporary capitalism. It becomes not only your fault but your responsibility and something that you need to work on yourself rather than something which is your workplace's. Problem.
0: You also talked in that previous answer about the gig economy, about things like Instacart, um, obviously Uber, Deliveroo. Post-pandemic, we're probably going to be seeing a much more bifurcated labour market, and you know, between much wealthier workers who are being worked far harder. So there's lots of anecdotal evidence of kind of professional workers being pushed to work and attend meetings and things during times that they would ordinarily have been commuting or at home or whatever, mm-hmm. but also being paid relatively well. And then relying much more on services like, you know, Instacart in the U.S. or Deliveroo here, which themselves rely on hyper exploitation of these workers in in very insecure positions. Mm. How could we build solidarity between those two very different experiences of Of oppression and exploitation, if you can use that terminology to describe the kind of professional managerial class, is that possible, Mm -hmm. or should we be, you know, should we be trying to organise these kinds of these different kinds of workers, um, or should we just be focusing on kind of one section of the labour
1: market? Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. I mean, it is hard because you see people the way people talk about, especially where these tendencies are further developed in the states. You see the way people talk about their instacart delivery people or their uber drivers as if they are there's a kind of relationship which which has something that is kind of servant like that right and and that is really really uh, distressing it was really horrific to see in the oh, pandemic goodness. to see people basically like talking down the people mm-hmm. who they had sent to the shop for them yeah. <laughs> under these kind of horrific conditions like risking for, for very low pay risking their health and the relationships that that kind of work creates are pretty harmful. And I think this is a, this is a, this is a serious barrier to, to solidarity because it creates these pretty servile relationships which are quite horrific. And there are these effects on workplace monitoring. In terms of where our attention should be diverted, I think it's a kind of you know let as many union struggles as possible bloom for me. Mm. I mean at the moment there is this we are mainly seeing a lot of union activity in this kind of prestigious work or jobs which are kind of seen as prestigious like places like the New Yorker or higher education. But I think what this also points to is a bifurcation of jobs in those sectors as well. So of course you do have people on uh, huge huge salaries with pretty decent conditions working in those um in those places but you also have people who are in a much more precarious situation even though their job obviously confers a huge deal of social prestige and and some of it might be that people are waking up to the reality or against this kind of meritocratic dream they were promised that you know if you work hard if you make the right choices you'll get this job or you'll get this permanent job and they've seen that this isn't the case and you know it's it's not as if um, there's a kind of i guess right-wing line which is you know why are you on strike to the university worker or to you know the someone someone in the somewhat, some of prestigious job you know you're hardly a, a coal miner or whatever but but building more worker power wherever, wherever it is is important and these struggles help other people make their cases um yeah I, I think it's a case of needing to build that that energy and sustain it everywhere wherever we can it is sometimes easier to not sometimes, it's generally easier to organise in, in workplaces where people have the ability to make that case publicly where it can garner that attention, where they have the kind of, um, where there is already a union or where people are able to have those kind of contacts to draw on and, and, and make that case. But I, think, I, th- I don't think there needs to be an either or. We can try and we should try wherever we can to build workers' power.
0: So another another thing that you mentioned was kind of the move towards working from home and the way you've been talking and the way that your, the book is set up, it draws a lot on kind of on Marxist theory, you know, the idea that as a worker, you're kind of selling your labour power, and therefore kind of accelerating exploitation is going to be inherent in the uh, in that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, Marx, obviously, in Capital, talked a lot about the kind of appalling conditions faced by workers in factories working together. But he also talks about workers who were working from home, they were paid peace rates, worked very hard, were isolated, difficult to unionize as a kind of not pre-capitalist, but I suppose like, you know, transition towards Mm. capitalism prior to people being kind of brought together within these large factories. Yeah. Could we be looking at a reversal to that kind of model as we move into this world where, you know, we are seeing precarious work, Where workers are kind of being forced often to kind of own parts and buy themselves parts of the things they need to do to do their jobs, work from home Mm. much more, and also find it much harder to unionise.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely an analogy that can be made between piecework and the kind of scrappy little bits of part time work that lots of um, home workers will be doing. I think, yeah, that piecework analogy really can hold. I think in terms of the question of how we organize people to work at home, that is much, much harder because you're stuck at home. You can't have those conversations with your. Um, you know that your fellow workers they're like hey did you hear that decision that management have made that what like that seems really unfair that we have to do that or we have to take that pay cut or Mm. something's happened to our leave right you can have those conversations over your workplace's software right but people are not necessarily going to so that isolation is really really important it has an effect on people's ability to organise, certainly, right? You don't have those natural conversations. You don't have that workplace as a physical place. You go to your workplace is in your own home. And, you know, your interactions with your fellow workers are mediated by software that belongs to your employer, if you even have that at all, right? So someone doing kind of bits of digital gig work, which perhaps is more like that kind of remnant of, of piecework, won't even necessarily have any interaction um, with anyone else who works for the company so and and the other thing that seems perhaps um, similar is the amount of time spent looking for work and the amount of time kind of picking up and managing little bits of work and having that kind of um being that kind of overspill right which is that kind of that super flexible workforce looks like you know, in the 19th century, that looks like women doing bits of sewing as piecework, finishing garments. And obviously that's, that is still going on now. Um, and as we saw during the pandemic, the nature of fast fashion needing to be so, so fast that you can produce things very quickly, have the shortest supply chain possible means that fast fashion has brought the production of garments back to the UK, back to Britain in a really big way. So there is still that, those kinds of bits of piecework, but for the kind of digital professional work, as you have, you were talking about there, I think, um, it becomes harder to organise those too. Um, those bits of kind of smaller garment production are obviously in slightly bigger workplaces than the completely isolated individual, but work comes back into the household, I guess is, is the is the mm. analogy with, with the 19th century. It comes back into the household in a way that it, it wasn't before.
0: How are all of these changes? So hours, conditions, precarious work, how are they impacting People's mental health? What's the uh, the evidence that we have to suggest, if there is any, that there's been a, an impact there?
1: Yeah, I mean, we certainly know that um, the number of people who report mental distress is up, the number of people who have prescriptions for antidepressants. And a lot of the time, this is connected to work. Uh, a lot of people cite workplace stress as part of it. I think the research, the kind of official You know, the ONS data won't say, are you sick because of capitalism, right? (laughs) Um, But we can definitely see that particularly since like the 2008 crash and and, and austerity is really significant here. I mean, it's not austerity alone, right? Like, I mean, it's not as if we can just simply go back to 2007 and say, here we go. We're in the promised land. Um, But, um, you know, the effects this has and particularly the way austerity instills a kind of culture of disbelief against people who are sick including those who who have uh, mental health problems definitely worsens the situation there's a kind of immediate suspicion and you get this you know you, you hear this kind of stuff from from the establishment from Tory MP saying you know Britain needs to be weaned off furlough Britain's addicted to furlough um or you know, the kind of invocations of these hardworking people versus slackers during austerity. Um, and this this serves to isolate people and again make them responsible for their health problems, for for not managing their human capital properly, for making the wrong choices. Whereas we know, or you know anyone should know, that unemployment or health are normally not in the power of the of an individual person, right? They're societal issues. They're experienced by individual people, of course. But what causes them happens at the level of the, of, of society it's a, it's a social issue but we have a political culture which is extremely bullying and we'll say you know th- no this is your fault you made bad choices uh, you didn't work hard enough you're lazy you should be doing this and you, you're doing the wrong thing this is why you've ended up like this and that the appearance of choice when actually often there was no choice is one of the most harmful things about the kind of psychic experience of of contemporary capitalism. that you're supposed to believe that your life is like that because of the choices you made. Now, if your life is going well, that might be helpful. Although it seems like people who are successful or a bit successful often feel like they're never doing enough, right? You hear these stories about you know high powered or less high powered medium powered whatever people feeling like they can, can never stop and some of this is mm-hmm. is a kind of cult of of performative overwork on the part of you know the pmc or whatever but some of it seems genuine people feel like the rug is about to be pulled at any moment but then if we think about the people who are really struggling being told this is your fault, right? The, the psychic damage there and the effect that must have on someone's mental well-being is absolutely stark and it is extremely cruel. I tend to want to avoid this kind of moral outrage at capitalism because it sometimes misses the point, but it's hard not to think about that kind of stuff and feel repulsed, morally repulsed at it. Can you talk a bit more about how all of the changes
0: we've discussed so far, so... Precarity, insecurity, ill health in the workplace are affecting men and women and
1: white people versus black and brown workers? The first thing is that precarious workers are more likely to be women and more likely to be people of colour. And that's often in bits of the precarious work that we don't necessarily see talked about so much so we get a lot of and because that is because of the really fantastic work that unions have done in those kind of sectors and and attention being drawn because they're new kind of technological platforms so there's lots of stuff about Uber and Deliveroo and and I think that it's really important that stuff is covered but we don't necessarily see as much about platform care work or about um, just Mm. more kind of standard care work and and so about one in four workers in in the care sector and adult social care are on a zero hours contract and about 80% of of workers in that sector are women, and a huge number are people of color as well, particularly women of color. So if you are a woman, if you're a person of color, you're more likely to be in these kind of roles. And at the same time, we have these kind of elite feminisms, which say, don't look at that kind of stuff, right? Mm. (laughs) Look at this this, uh, successful woman. They have the same interests. And I mean, they don't, right? Say you are the woman who runs the company, that provides privatized social care. Okay, you, that you have one set of interests there, and your your employees do not have the same interests as you. You want to make money from it. They want to be able to have good working conditions. They want to be able to get home and not feel completely exhausted. And the women who um, are being cared for within adult social care might have different interests from the woman who runs, who owns that uh, private company or, or a senior in it. So there's this kind of mythology of um, shared interests that rides over and above our antagonisms that the women kind of class antagonisms that that women have for each other. And that's one particularly frustrating thing is that um, that the discussion of women's workplace rights tends to focus on getting women into these very high-up jobs rather than saying, okay, well why is it that the majority of women, the majority of people in these in part-time work, in low-paid work, are women. And then, I mean, it's not to say that that these sectors are particularly rosy for men at all, Um, you know, the prevalence of dangerous work. So workplace injuries and workplace deaths have massively reduced over time, but in recent years they've plateaued, which suggests that, you know, um, not enough is being done um, in terms of workplace health and safety monitoring from national bodies and also um, work intensification makes injuries more likely. And, of course, sectors dominated by men, including sectors like construction, where unions have been blacklisted and pushed out and and union members have been treated appallingly. These are sectors where primarily men work. But at the same time, it's also that that, that care work, care work and cleaning can also be uh, physiologically pretty harmful. There's empirical evidence on the the damage that um, cleaning can do. And, you know, I think we forget that a lot of care work in in adult social care is quite physical work you're you're moving people around and the conditions under which you do it which is that you don't have very much time to see people you are tired you've been working very long shifts this makes workplace injuries more likely yeah these sectors are gendered they are racialized i also want to talk a little bit about the different experiences
0: of younger people at the moment in the labor market versus the boomers, shall we say, (laughs) you know, young people going into the labour market now and also all those who entered after the financial crisis will face this like long term scarring effect on their wages. Younger people are obviously less likely to be part of a union. A lot of them don't really know what a union is sometimes Mm. and are really on the sharp end of a lot of these trends in terms of precarious work. Whilst older people, as we've seen recently, many of whom have this huge sway in elections had a different experience of work not always a great one but you know certainly not experiencing a lot of the trends that we're seeing today and are now retired often with kind of relatively secure pensions and still are subject to all these narratives about like young people being just lazy and not being able to cope with the same sort of work that they have do you know that there is like a really genuine generational divide here without kind of falling into the trap of talking about young people versus old people and doing that kind of non-class-based generational politics to what extent are mm. experience is different and how can we actually start to organize young people
1: yeah so I think I think you're completely right that we can't just fall into this it's just boomer stuff but I think what we can say is that people who are older tend to have an experience of work where work was um more formal the conditions were better um the conditions of unemployment were also better um so you know this is there's a kind of cliche of like you know someone uh a, as a, a zoomer or a millennial going to their parent and saying you know i can't get a job and then they just saying what are you d- talking about just go around to the high street <laughs> print out your cv and okay. give it out and obviously this isn't you know there's Some of this is just like, you know, okay, boomer memes or whatever. But there is a kernel of truth to it, which is that the legal infrastructure that protected work, that that protected unions, that allowed unions to fight, has been dismantled. Right. Um, And the sectors that were highly unionized have been destroyed. So this does have effects on what the experience of work is. And this isn't to say that everyone over the age of 50 had a great time at work. Not at all. But there is a gap of knowledge there i think for some people of course this isn't to say that class doesn't matter it does class matters class exists within generations but generations have especially when you've had this this legal political and social infrastructure dismantled in the later 20th century right so people's experiences are quite different and i think there is this lack of um lack of knowledge about what especially the the crap bit of today's labor market is like Of course, this does not hold true for all older people. I mean, this is something you see a lot, you see a lot of people who are older, who are clearly having to work, who don't have those kinds of support that they might have expected they would have. You see people working, in older people working in supermarkets, you see people working for longer and longer. Um, So it's not to say, you know, all people have this wonderful time and poor young people, but that legal infrastructure that protected workers has been undermined and that does change people's experiences. What we do for young people, I mean, we do have like a, a high degree of politicization that has come from mobilizations around left populism in Britain, around Corbyn, and that is really significant. So it's, it's nurturing those movements and protecting those and encouraging people to get more involved to, you know, there's a kind of, there's, there's always this meme of join your union, join a union, right? But what do you do next? it's not enough to merely join it's not just a bit of insurance you have to be active in your union too so it's pushing people beyond that kind of initial politicization and I think that's one of the things Mm -hmm. I really wanted to do with the book because there is this widespread sense of work is not working capitalism something has gone wrong but it's often left quite like either vague or all-encompassing you see the way kind of like influencers apologize for bad behavior by being like well you know it's just capitalism we have to do what we have to do to survive so no actually like it's." I mean, it's better than it would have been a few years ago, because at least the concept of capitalism is being invoked. At least that's present. Right. But it becomes this all encompassing, totalized thing. And it's not these people are kind of like, you know, Adornians. Right. They don't think that they just they just don't have an idea of the dynamics of capitalism. So that's really what I wanted to do with the book was give a sense of what this thing capitalism is, how the relations in it are lived and what we might be able to do to change it. And work is a really good way of looking at that because most people have to have jobs, right? <laughs> so yeah. it's a good way of seeing those relations, making sense of them without being too like, hey, young people, so work is just like TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Final question
0: for you. Is good work possible under capitalism?
1: I think no, but I think better work is. So it's very clear that some people's jobs are much much better than others they provide security they provide meaning they provide um, friendship they provide an ability to do some really interesting stuff and 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 people who want to criticize work like like myself have to face up to the reality that people do often report enjoying their jobs so some people do have jobs they enjoy but many many people have jobs which are deeply exploited um exhibit extreme unfreedom extreme bullying like cruelty um horrors So there can be much better work than others, right? So an Instacart worker relative to a university lecturer, right? These are very different experiences of work. So we can definitely say some jobs are better than others. But there is a different kind of producing different ways of living completely, which would be outside of capitalist relations as we know them what that exactly looks like is obviously harder to say and this is always such a cop-out answer this kind of you know i'm not going to give you the, the the final vision of what society could be like but we can see hints of it when we organize politically and we are working together in a way that is outside of the wage relation outside of work i mean it's not outside of all the elements of capitalism of course it's not the commodity form might still be lingering somewhere right it's not outside of capitalism but we get a sense of what that kind of creative co-producing world making activity could be like we can see glimpses of it and there are different ways of organizing production that would allow those kind of experiences now there might still be drudgery right we might still have to sweep floors there will still be difficult bits of work we can't just get a robot to do everything but it's entirely possible that things could look very very different and the experience of doing things with each other living could be so much better than it is now even while clearly some jobs now are better than others. So now we have better work, but we still don't have good work. Mm. Very well said.
0: Thank you so much, (laughs) Amelia, for joining me on this episode of A World One.
1: Thank you for having me.